Welcome to the Church's Radical Reform Podcast, a series examining the unprecedented reform process in global Catholicism, launched by Pope Francis. My name is Christopher Lamb, and I'm a journalist who covers the Vatican. In this episode, I'm asking what the Synod could mean for the role of women in the Church. So, Professor Phyllis Sagano, uh, thank you very much for joining me. You are a, an academic at Hofstra University in New York, and you sat on a commission uh, set up by the Pope to look at the role um, of women deacons in the early church. If I could start by asking you, what was the role of women in the early church when it came to official ministry? Well, it's it's. Thank you very much. It's glad, glad to be with you here today, Chris. You know, uh, first of all, the the name of the commission was for the study of the diaconate of women. The Holy Father did say, when speaking to the uh, assembled women of the International Union of Superiors General in 2016, when they actually asked for a commission, the Holy Father responded, he "said You know, I really would like to know what did women do in the early church? What were, what were their jobs, tasks, duties?" functions. And, and when we, we look into, obviously, into history, we can't say that everything happened in every space in every time. Uh, but again, when we talk about the early church, we talk about East and West, we're really going up to the 12th century, because we have evidence that women were ordained in Northern Italy uh, in the 12th century. Now, maybe that's because the bishop didn't get the memo, but, uh, but we do know that, that there were women deacons up until the 12th century. 12th century. What did they do? Well, they, they catechized uh, uh, mostly women and children. They assisted in the baptism and chrismation of women and children. They're running parishes. Uh, and uh, they are uh, individuals who are seen as representatives of the community and they work with the authority of the bishop. Uh, uh, in, in other places, uh, women, mostly women religious, are more circumscribed and they are performing catechesis, they're, they're managing hospital uh, ministries and, and social services, uh, but they are kept further away from sacrament, further away from the altar. So do you hope that this synod process can officially recognize what is going on in say the the Amazon or in other parts of, of Latin America where women are leading parishes, is that what your hope for the synod would would be? Well, my my hope would be that the synod in Rome in October of 2023 would recognize the requests of different uh, uh, ecclesial bodies to bring their uh, situations uh, more in line with what is necessary. You know, there's, there's no reason to ordain somebody just for the sake of ordaining them. But uh, many people who work in various ministries and diaconal ministries who happen to be female uh, say that it would just make things a lot more easy, easier for them and bishops I've spoken to, including bishops in the United States, say it would make things easier for them. Why? Well, uh, bishop, the bishop uh, then would have trained, uh, ordained, and given faculties to the women who are working for him. Um, in South America, 
the women would have faculties and would be ordained as representatives of the bishop, and, and they would have uh, uh, received a certain amount of training, if anybody wants to look it up. There's a provision in canon law that says that a person who is not a priest or a bishop can have care of a parish, can, can manage the affairs of the parish. Now, sometimes that person is a, a lay person, a religious, male or female. Some person, sometimes that is a deacon. Some of the women in the Amazon uh, who are already working as parish life coordinators, but are not so officially um, named that, uh, may not have the vocation to the diaconate. I think that is the, the key uh, to the, um, the, the mission, uh, the mission of being missionaries, um, that we need to be clear that it depends on the local community. Um, some local communities uh, may function best, uh, particularly when there's not a priest around, with a woman deacon uh, as the uh, administrator or the manager of the parish. Um, some local communities might not. Uh, but we need to, to trust in the Holy Spirit to help us grow uh, to understand that the church is the function of the people of God. It is not a military organization that um, is top down all the time and can only function if there is bishop, priest, um, in, uh, running a diocese, running a, uh, running a parish. Because that is, there is a strong mentality still in the church, particularly at high levels, that you know, the church has its structure, and it, we don't need to to do anything really with it. Um, can you tell me a bit about your experience in the Vatican when you were on the commission uh, looking at the female diaconate? Did you experience some of this resistance that that, that we often see to to uh, reform and, and, and renewal? Well, there are two questions there. One is the question about reform and renewal, and the other question is about women. Uh, and I think that the, uh, uh, the second uh, really uh, uh, is, is what the problem is relative to the first. That is, um, women are uh, disregarded uh, in general in all male uh, corporations, organizations. So um, I, I wouldn't say that uh, more or less uh, in when I was living in the Casa Santa Marta, the home of the Holy Father, uh, I wouldn't say more or less that I was disregarded. Uh, but then again, I was there at the invitation of the Holy Father and I was on a papal commission uh, relative to my topic. <clears throat> I did get some pushback, uh, mostly from cardinals and bishops from Africa. And the ones I can recall right now are all uh, retired. Yes, and I've heard it said in the, in the Vatican that the Pope, he can't really go forward with, with women deacons because all women deacons did in the past was help um, with baptisms of, um, of, of women because in those days there was a full immersion baptism and for the modesty of the woman, you had a female deacon to assist with that. So that doesn't happen anymore. We don't really have any justification for female deacons. So um, the conversation is over. Yeah, well, that's ridiculous. The, the fact of the matter is, if you don't need women deacons, then you don't need deacons at all. 
the, the job of the deacon is to preach and to teach, to, to carry the word of God to the people of God, to, um, to minister to the people of God. If they think that, that and, and I, I recognize this is, I've heard it myself, it's, it's a failure of seminary education and a way of defending against women, keeping women on the other side of the altar rail. Um, uh, if they think that diaconal ministry by women is unnecessary, well, then I think they should just go work somewhere else. Uh, it's, it's, just, it's just insane to not think that adding more people who wish to dedicate themselves um, as ordained ministers to the life of the people of God uh, through the church, if they think we don't need more ministry, then I think they should go uh, go somewhere else. Uh, it's just it's just it's just a silly kind of a uh, and an ignorant uh, discussion. And if the church is going to be standing for justice and for standing on the side of women who are experiencing violence, etc., it, it needs to uh, ensure it's it is credible in its in its own workings. Is that what you're saying? You see, the credibility of the church is is at uh, is really um, in danger. I was seated at table uh, in the Holy Father's house across at lunch from across from a official of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, and I said, "Why can't women be ordained as deacons?" And he said, "Because women cannot image Christ." Now that happens to be aside from stupid heretical. Um, he's thinking of women not being um, identically symbolically like the human male Jesus. But when we talk about the risen Lord, we all represent the risen Lord. We have to see Christ in every single person. If we don't see Christ in every single person, women and men, then we are not going to understand. Uh, we're not going to be able to effectively speak against violence, about violence against women. Terrible, terrible violence all over the world. Finally, I wanted to um, ask a little bit about your, your role uh, as a commander in the Naval Reserve and, <laughs> and how that has uh, informed some of your work in this area. I mean, you, you, you've been in, in, in that kind of leadership position. What kind of experiences uh, or lessons have you drawn from, the, from um, your experiences in, in the Naval Reserve for this work in the church? I don't know if I ever told you this, I joined the Navy to learn how the church worked um, because they're male organizations. And I was a student, I was a graduate student and quite frankly had grown fond of eating and thought it would be a good idea to get a part-time job. And I'm, I'm glad I did because I, I, I can understand the, um, um, the relative equality in, in ways of operating in the church and in, and in, the, uh, in the military, in the Navy. Uh, for example, um, in, in the Navy, um, if you want to do something that's kind of not um, traditional or something people usually do, you just get a waiver. In the uh, church, um, the same thing happens. It's called a derogation from the law, you know, so uh, and, and uh, you know, so so but you do it in the Navy. It's called epikai. You do what 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 the commanding officer would require as the best thing for the people. And I think in the, in the church, that should be the same, uh, that anybody who wants to um, uh, 
request a derogation from the law or go off the reservation and do something else. He's doing it really for the, for the benefit of the people of God as he carries the God, he or she carries the gospel to the people. The bedrock, today's gospel uh, talks about building on foundation and not building on sand. All that the gospel implies, all Catholic social teaching, uh, but also the way in which we need to respect each other, you know, um, and, and the whole panoply of the people of God, uh, you know, uh, and, and, and uh, I think that's what the Holy Father's trying to do with this movement towards synodality. There are already signs that the synod process is opening up new roles for women. And in Ireland and Australia, it is women who are leading the way. Well, I'm delighted to be joined uh, by Nicola Brady, who has been appointed by the bishops in Ireland to lead the National Synod process. And Nicola is the first woman to be appointed to such a role. She is an expert in the work of reconciliation and has uh, researched in depth the church hierarchy's response to political violence in Northern Ireland and has uh, worked with the Irish bishops um, on social justice matters and other issues. Nicola, thank you so much for joining me. Um, can I start by asking, how did someone such as yourself end up uh, in your position? I know you're very young by church standards and in your, your early early 40s. So how did you find yourself um, in this position of leading the National Synod process in Ireland? Well, I worked for the Bishops' Conference between 2008 and 2016, leading the Justice and Peace Office there. And I went from that role to uh, be General Secretary of the National Ecumenical Instruments in Ireland, so the Irish Council of Churches and the Irish Interchurch Meeting. I've been doing that for the past five and a half years. So in both those roles, much of the work has involved facilitating dialogue and bringing people together for conversations, discernment processes, leading to shared action on difficult issues, issues that are of social concern and seeking to explore together what the role and what the response of the church might be to some of the biggest challenges facing our society. So I was asked by the bishops if I would chair the steering committee that is overseeing the work for the first two years of the Synodal Pathway in Ireland. So it's two years of what we hope will be around a five-year process in total, leading to some form of national synod, um, in whether it's a single assembly or a series of assemblies that remains to be worked out, but some sort of synodal pathway for the church in Ireland. These first two years are dedicated to discernment, reflection, planning. We'll be doing a lot of listening. And was it always your aim to pursue this kind of work when you're making decisions about what you'd like to do with your life? How did, how did, how did it come about that you decided to go into work with the or for the church? 
Well, faith was always very much uh, a part of my life from childhood. I think like many people, my grandparents were a very strong influence in my early years and faith and prayer just ran so seamlessly through every aspect of, of life was very closely linked to family and community. So it was always a big part of my identity, but I have ended up doing jobs that when I was at school and choosing a career path that I didn't know existed. So when I was in secondary school and in careers class, it just wouldn't have occurred to me that there were roles open for me in in the church so that I would be able to draw on my faith really in a professional capacity. And when I was in secondary school, my focus was very much on languages. So in university, I chose European studies and I wanted a broad formation that was going to give me a preparation to perhaps work as an interpreter or something like that. And in the course of those studies, I became very interested in issues of identity. And I started to explore the intersection between faith and identity and take a lot of courses in church history which then led me to a PhD looking at the response of the Catholic bishops to political violence in Northern Ireland and the Basque country during the 20th century. And from there, then uh, when I started to look for uh, work opportunities after university, I was quite focused on the whole area of research and the job that was available with the Bishops' Conference in Justice and Peace, the job title was Research Coordinator. So that sparked my interest, sparked my curiosity, and I went along for interview. And there really discovered that there were some incredible opportunities open to me that just had not been on my radar at all. And uh, in that role, I got to experience the most incredible opportunities for frontline peace building work, um, in an Irish context and right across Europe and um, from there I have just been um, just really inspired to continue working in uh, a church context in general and then in particular working in a peace and reconciliation context on the island of Ireland the whole area of ecumenism was obviously of central importance to that and that has become a particular uh, passion of, of mine. And so that is the, the particular area of work that I have dedicated myself to. And do you think the synodal process can help in that work of political reconciliation when you look at what's going on in the world, the, the polarisation that afflicts so much of society, the threats to the Good Friday Agreement where you are in, in your part of the world? Do you think synodality can offer something to the to the world? Absolutely. When I was asked by the Irish bishops to take on this role, it was on the basis of my experience in facilitating dialogue. And I'm doing that in a church context, in an ecumenical context, but also more broadly in uh, the context of various uh, forums for civic dialogue that are taking place in a, a Northern Ireland and in an all-island context, and where we're seeing that there's a role and a space for churches, and sometimes, too, churches can be the conveners of those wider 
civic dialogues, even in the context of an increasingly secular and multicultural society, because churches are still seen as trusted leaders. People have the sense that they understand where they're coming from in terms of their values and churches are still regarded often as honest brokers for conversations about some of the big identity-based challenges and political challenges facing communities on the island of Ireland and more broadly. And so I think that by being transparent and sharing about the journey that the church is on in this synodal process, a journey that is calling us to be self-critical about our leadership, to be self-critical about how we're doing in terms of inclusion, uh, in terms of outreach to the marginalised, and in terms of how we are dealing with difference. Now, you mentioned uh, inclusion and just picking up your own uh, journey into the work that you're, you're doing and you, you're explaining that you didn't know that such work could exist uh, for you within the church does that um concern you that perhaps or does it concern you that perhaps other catholic women women of faith who look at the church and say well there isn't really any, any role for me because this is a church that is effectively run by men who, who are priests or bishops well, I think there's a major opportunity in this synodal process to, to change that and to help people see and to help women in particular see the leadership opportunities that might be there for them and particularly to embed a, a more synodal, more collaborative style of leadership across the church with all the positive developments that that, that can bring. And I think in particular, there's a real need to reach younger people and younger women who may not have had role models that have helped them to see that there are leadership opportunities there for them. And that's one of the things that certainly, you know, when I speak to younger people around the kind of work that I've been able to do in both the roles that I've held now in a church context, the opportunities to experience really significant work of peace building and social justice in different contexts throughout the world. People always respond by saying that's incredibly interesting, that's an amazing job, I'd love to do something like that, but I had no idea that this kind of work was going on or that those kind of roles are available. And so that's something that I think through the synodal process, encouraging more people to come forward, to tell their stories, to speak about how faith is shaping their lives, how faith supports them in their activism in all kinds of social justice and peace building work. I think it's creating new spaces and helping people to see that they don't have to make a choice between their faith identity and their professional calling and that there are lots of opportunities within the church for people to bring those experiences that they're developing in their education, in their professional lives, and that there are leadership opportunities there that they perhaps would not have known existed, and also an opportunity for the church to benefit much more from the experience of, of the people who are there and want to play an active role in the, the church's calling and mission and its 
service to to the needs of the world today. I want to ask you though, uh, in the context of Ireland and the devastation of the sexual abuse crisis, uh, obviously it's not just something that Ireland has gone through, um, but in the context of Ireland, it has led to a huge loss of credibility uh, in the church as an institution. Many people are walking away um, and it has exposed the uh, huge problems um, and deficiencies in a clericalist model of the church, let's say. So why is the synodal reform process so important in the context uh, of what happened uh, with abuse? Well, I think the the victims and survivors of abuse through their courage in coming forward and speaking out have done such a service for everyone in exposing those abuses and injustices and the practices that were causing so much harm and they have contributed such a great deal to the protection of vulnerable individuals and they have laid the foundations for the church in facing up to the causes and consequences of these abuses and injustices and through that um, we hope ultimately the the healing of relationships so that work is already underway and you know began right when the, the first victims and survivors began to to come forward but it's a very long process so some listening and some research some study and reflection has already taken place in terms of the the causes and consequences but we realize that these are very much still live issues and will be significant in the course of the the synodal pathway and um, some people write from the earliest moments when uh, abuses and, and other unjust practices were exposed were calling for a synodal type model as a response so <clears throat> excuse me it has taken us some time to to get to that place but um what we are trying to do in in some ways responds to to those appeals as well as other uh, factors such as obviously pope francis leadership and the the model of of synodality in the universal church i suppose uh, a really important theme as well as the the healing of relationships and one that um, aligns very closely with that is the whole area of trust and so a major element of the the legacy of this devastating abuse crisis has been the loss of trust and something that we hope that uh, a synodal pathway will contribute is to the rebuilding of trust. And are you hopeful that this process can lead to concrete reforms and changes and not just a nice exchange of views and then everyone goes back to normal? How hopeful are you that this will lead to reform? Well, I think that 
the the vision for this process is one that is very much relational and i hope that you know people will see something positive and something different happening in the catholic church and as we're sharing about that journey with its challenges that there will be learning and opportunities for engagement for all and it could be a game-changing moment for the role of women in the church as well is is that also what what you see this process as leading to uh, that's a priority that I hear uh, stated repeatedly by a wide range of, of different people that we want to see greater visibility of women's leadership, um, for more women to realize that there are leadership opportunities available to them in the church. And as part of that deep and respectful listening process to hear about the barriers, the challenges that women feel have held them back in, in terms of their leadership, the times that people have had negative experiences that we can learn from, but again, also the hopes and the, the visions for what that leadership might be and how the church can best support women's leadership. Someone who has been examining what these leadership roles could look like is Susan Pascoe in Australia. She's held a range of high-profile positions in both the church and wider society. She's also advising the Vatican on the Synod process. How urgent do you think it is to uh, include women um, in a more visible way in the church? I do think that there's an urgency because uh, particularly, I think, for those of us in um, developed countries, there's a real dissonance now between um, the pathways that women can take, whether it's in um, business, government, uh, in, in any sphere, any professional sphere, uh, women are now taking significant leadership roles. Uh, and in the church for the diocesan and parish roles, uh, they've got no visibility at all. The second, I think, is that uh, with the um, pandemic, which, as we know, is not over yet, uh, there has been a, a great difficulty in people attending mass physically and there's been um, a loss of income uh, for the church. Uh, so that's impacting, I think, just on the to be honest, on the church's viability. And if you add to that those churches that are making significant payments to the victims and survivors of sexual abuse, that's a further uh, drain on, on the church. And how do you think some of this might play out in, in practical terms? Women are involved in leading Catholic schools, are in senior positions in dioceses, but Given the shortage of priests in, in parts of the West and uh, and more broadly, um, do you think that women could be leading parishes in the future or could be taking on those, that kind of role? I think there's probably a range of models and, and, and uh, we're clearly living through an era of transition. But even in my own diocese, there's an exercise underway at the moment in recognition of the, the shortage of priests to um, try and consolidate some parishes. It's been happening um, slowly up until now, and this is a more deliberate um, exercise. 
And if you look at parallel exercises in mm. Europe when you create these kind of the mega parishes, uh, then you can have teams of people. Um, you, you still have a priest there and, and leading as the, as the leader in terms of um, being able to still have the, all of the sacraments, but there's no reason why there's a whole range of tasks in the um, related uh, of the mega structure that the, the women can't conduct. They won't be able to consecrate the Eucharist, but they will be able to have a, a liturgical celebration. So um, it, depending on where we get to with numbers, that, that, that just might be uh, the reality that we're facing. So I think that there's a range of models that, that could be looked at. The ordination of women as priests has, has been ruled out, but the question of women deacons is very much a live issue. Do you think the local synods, or the discussions that are taking place in parishes, can they address the question of, of women deacons? Or do you think it just has to be something that the Pope decides? Obviously, he has a commission that's looking at this question in, in the Vatican, but do you think the question of women deacons should be looked at by the local synods? And what's your view on on, on the question of, of female deacons? There's a, a few responses, I think, Christopher. One is that uh, this uh, process of, um, of synodality, of animating the voices of, of all of the laity in the church, not just those who get to attend a bishop's assembly, an Episcopal assembly, I think uh, is an incredibly important first step. But it's unlikely after a couple of centuries of practice that, you know, that it, it will lead immediately to that issue coming to resolution of women deacons. So the issue can certainly be discussed and should be um, uh, put up there to the to the bishops to to, to for, for their um, assembly, but be realistic about the time frame of change within the church. I think that's right. Yeah, yeah. But, but look, I'm hoping um, we'll see some change in my lifetime, Christopher. Uh, I'm, I'm conscious, for example, that if you look at the papacy, um, that Pope Benedict. Uh, by taking an uh, early, uh, taking a resignation, an early departure from the papacy, in effect, um, upended the theology of the, the papacy. Uh, and so the, the church has managed to cope with that very well. So I think, I don't think that there'll necessarily be a similar, um, you know, upheaval moment in relation to uh, ordination of deacons uh, but I do, th I do think that we're, we're in a process of gradual change that's going to um, lead in that direction. And as Pope Francis is always saying, be open to God's surprises. Indeed. Yeah. <laughs> um, so when it comes to this whole process of sandality in understanding what um, this whole uh, reform and renewal initiative is all about... Um, can you give us a bit of an insight into into how it works? Because Australia has been something of a pioneer. Obviously, has the plenary council, which is a synodal process, which is going on. How how, from your experience, does it work? Um, synodality does it actually make a difference when people get together in a room and try and discern the way forward? 
I think it does. And, and I was not um, one of those um, people who attended as well, the, your listeners may not know, but there's actually uh, quite a, a set formula for who gets to attend an Episcopal assembly. And even though the Australian bishops wrote to the Vatican requesting that more lay people uh, be involved, that was not uh, agreed to. But talking to many of the lay people who were involved and who, uh, and some of them who who blogged about it, the the bit that they loved was that it begins with scripture. There's a strong focus on listening, and particularly when there's a position that's at odds with your own view, but that respectful listening, um, and then um, more. Time, more time for reflection and then trying not necessarily get to get to consensus um, but to at least an appreciation of each other's view. Uh, and then there's a consolidation. Uh, attached to this exercise are uh, experts or the, the Latin phrase periti uh, and they every day they were, they, were, they were listening into the groups and then they were providing feedback um, at, at the end of every day. So it's quite a, they met in an assembly. The first was October. Um, and at July, uh, after a process of um, all of the ideas that came not only from that assembly in October, but from 17,500 submissions that were compiled by 250,000 Australian Catholics, um, all of that's going to feed into the final assembly in July um, and then there will be um, positions taken. They're not recommendations. It's not a parliament, but there'll be, there'll be views put um, and the, they will then go to the bishops' conference who will, the, any that relate to the universal church um, will go further uh, to Rome, but those that relate to the church in Australia will stay with the uh, Australian Catholic Bishops Conference for a final determination. So it's quite a, a lengthy process. And what do you say to those who are skeptical about this process? I and mean, there's some people who think it's just a waste of time, it's not gonna change anything. And there are others who are concerned that this is just going to lead to lots of disagreements and lots of problems. And actually it's better for the church just to stick to what it knows, stick to its structure of bishops, priests, people, and, get on with um, trying to get its message out into the world. So what do you say to those skeptics um, who may be unsure this is actually going to do anything? So, it, it, you know, there's a lot of reasons why this is going to have barriers and difficulties, but we need to, this, it's a conversation worth happening. happening. One thing that I would say to the people who are skeptical about it, and um, this has been wonderful, is that, it has, it's almost as though it's unleashed an energy in the church today. So unsolicited from around the world, people are sending into the Secretariat for the Synod of Bishops videos of um, what they're doing, copies of the documents that they've developed. Uh, they're putting uh, their, their calls to be involved on YouTube. There's this massive... Um, surge of energy that's happening uh, internationally. So I do think that Pope Francis is onto something here, that, that the people have got are ready to speak. Um, and 
in addition to this invitation that's happening through the diocese, um, it's worth remembering that in the year that must have been his Annas Horribilis, as the Queen once said of her year, um, in 2018, when <clears throat> you had all of those issues of abuse swirling around the church, in August of that year, he wrote to the people of God. He put it on the internet, which these days is about as direct as you can get in terms of uh, a direct communication, not mediated through normal um, church channels, and, and basically said, we need you to get involved. We can't do this through the, the regular structures that we have in the church um, when he, he called out clericalism, he called out some of the, the, the difficulties that the church has in, in um, effecting change and invited and, in fact, authorised the people of God to get involved. So I think that we're, we're at an epochal moment and uh, we have the opportunity to seize it uh, and to reanimate the church in a way that it... Uh, exercised uh, its own um, community and servant leadership in the first millennium. When it comes to the role of women in the church, the Synod is opening up spaces for change. It's all to play 